Blog Talk Radio. Hi, and welcome to The Art of Film Funding. I'm your co-host, Claire Papan, along with Carol Dean, author of the best-selling book, The Art of Film Funding. Carol is also the founder and president of From the Heart Productions and the host of this show. Today, we are joined by our guest host, filmmaker Heather Lenz, best known for directing and producing the Sundance documentary, Kusama Infinity. We are pleased to have Janice Engel with us today. She's an award-winning filmmaker and showrunner who has created numerous documentaries, nonfiction television series, and specials for major media companies. Her most recent feature documentary, Raise Hell, The Life and Times of Molly Ivins, premiered at the 2019 Sundance Film Festival and won the award, the Audience Award, at South by Southwest. Raise Hell reflects themes Ingle holds dear, speaking truth to power, igniting activism, advocating for underdogs, and finding our shared humanity. The film was supported with a Roy Dean film grant from From the Heart Productions and recently appeared on the Rotten Tomatoes list of the top 213 best films directed by women of the 21st century. And as a side note, our guest host film, Kusama Infinity, was also supported with a Roy Dean film grant from From the Heart Productions and also appeared on the list of the top 213 Best Films Directed by Women of the 21st Century. Great to have you both on the show and really looking forward to the conversation. Thank you so much, Claire, for the lovely introduction. And thank you so much, Janice, for being here. I'm super excited to talk about your film, which I absolutely love. For anyone who doesn't already know, can you please tell us a little bit about who Molly was and why you decided to make a film about her? Well, first of all, thank you um, for having me. I'm really, really appreciative and uh, feel like I'm in, um, you know, good company, Heather. Thank you. Thank you so <laughs> as, much. As two women filmmakers, you know, you know what, what, what an uphill battle that can be and has been, I'm sure, for both of us. Um, Molly Ivins, well, you know, <laughs> Molly Ivins, the six-foot-tall, you know, red-haired, a Texan who spoke truth to power and gave voice to those that didn't have one, but used humor to, uh, to basically get people to listen. Um, she, she was a maverick and um, she took no prisoners. She wasn't afraid of anybody. She was incredibly courageous. And um, I just, so to be totally honest, I did not know who Molly Ivins was. I know people find that kind of shocking, uh, I was, I was, I knew of her. I had heard of her, um, but I didn't. I wasn't part of her constituency. She literally had a constituency, and I was not part of it. She was at the height of her powers in over three to four hundred newspapers. But in terms of my timing, I grew up in New York, and that's when Molly was probably Molly was, you know, going. She was in college. She was the Texas Observer. 
that's part of her history, but it, I wasn't in her, that sphere. At the time she was in all these newspapers, I was in L.A. and focused in a different direction. And I think I had, I had heard of her. I knew she had dubbed uh, George W. Bush Shrub the Little Bush, which I thought was very funny. And I think I'd seen her on Late Night in the late 90s. The way I found out about her was my soon-to-be producing partner, James Egan, uh, a, a documentary producer, and as well as a professor and uh, other, other assorted things, um, wanted to make a film with me. And he called me up in, in uh, spring of 2012 and said, you need to go see this play at the Geffen Playhouse called Red Hat Patriot, the kick-ass wit of Molly Ivins. And not knowing really who she was, I said, why? And he said, because I had to last week, of course, which I, I giggled. He knew, he knew the playwright. And, um, and he said, you need to go see it. And, I, and then he dangled the carrot. It stars Kathleen Turner in a one-woman show. And I said, okay. <laughs> I bought a ticket. I sat like third row, slightly off center, and I was blown away. I laughed my ass off it, the entire the entire, you know, uh, length of the play. I, I just, I, I, I laughed. I, I almost cried. I went home and I Googled her till two or three in the morning and all these C-SPAN clips came up. I finally had to go to sleep and I was just, I was knocked out and I called James in the morning and I said, you know, what's up? And he said, nothing's been done. And I said, nothing's been done. He said, just the play. And I know the playwright. And uh, he had gone backstage. He had talked to Kathleen so we basically met with Allison and Margaret Engel, who actually their last name is the same last name as mine. We all spell it That's interesting. Isn't that interesting? And I became a joke that I said, you know, Engel in, in, in German and Danish and all these other languages means angel. And so I became my joke that I said, Molly has her brigade of angels doing her bidding for her down here on terra firma. So that's kind of how, how it, that's, how it got started. <laughs> wow, that's quite a story. It's super interesting. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about um, Molly's feelings about reporters and objectivity. <laughs> okay, well, you know, Molly, Molly loved, she, she was a boots-on-the-ground reporter. You know, she was, you know, she went to Columbia J School, um, the journalism school, because back then in the mid-60s, if you were a, a woman journalist, or, and I put that in quotes, you were relegated to the snake pit, which was food, fashion, gardening, and, you know, tips about, you know, how to take care of your family um, and the obituaries. That was not her, her thing. And, uh, but she had great respect for, she was a hardcore re- reporter. She started out as a, uh, uh, in the kind of the doing obituaries for the Houston Con um, when she was at, you know, during her summer breaks from Smith. And, uh, she, di- and there's, there's a, she did actually a very, very powerful piece um, in the Houston Cron with uh, Carlton Carl about uh, race in the, lower, in, the, in the lower wards in Houston, um, the disparities of race. But she was in, but she knew that unless she got a, got a master's degree, she would not be taken seriously. So she went to the Columbia J School. And when she got out of the Columbia J School, she um, went to the two, she put in applications, because everybody would have relegated her to the snake pit, that she put in two applications to the 
two places. I think one is in, in, I want to say Dade County in Miami. The other was the Min Tribune, the Minneapolis Star Tribune, which actually had, you know, made women reporters. And so she took the Min Trib. And so she had great respect for it. But the Min Trib um, at her time there, and you have to watch the film to see what happened, but she, watch Raytel, but she basically um, uh, ended up, hang on, let me just, there's a, there's, I'm just going to get rid of this. She, she ended up um, bucking her editors there. She, they had her do a piece called, um, to, to kind of to track the youth movement, she had been going to protest a lot, um, covering all of that it was the time of the Chicago 7, and she did a piece called The Young Radicals. And so the Trib felt, you know, it's, it's, you're taught in journalism school that, you know, you have to do fair and balanced, you know, reporting. And, you know, she, you know, get all sides of the story. You know, you have to be objective. And she um, basically wasn't going to have it. She, she, she did those pieces. She did The Young Conservative, and then she did an, another one. Anyway, she was always coming up against her, her, her bosses. And her Minneapolis Tribune editor, Frank Premack, called her out on it. And, um, you know, she basically felt, as she said, rightfully, first of all, there's no such thing as objectivity, and everyone in journalism knows it. And we hoist ourselves on our own petard constantly by pretending that we're objective when there is no such thing. How you see the world depends on where you stand and who you are. There's nothing any of us can do about that. So my solution has been to let my readers know where I stand. And that, that is, that's Molly Ivan's words. That is exactly how she felt. And uh, yeah, think... so, <laughs> go ahead, sorry. No, no, you go ahead. No, so that's, that, that's what started it. And, and, you know, really, okay, so I'm going to flash forward. Here we are today, Heather. <laughs> Fair and balanced, yes. You know, uh, in terms of uh, Molly, Molly was incredibly prescient. She saw things and knew things. You know, I, I, I'm going to tell you 10, 20, 30 years before they're going to happen. She, because she knew history. And she, you know, she railed against the, the, the media silos. The echo chambers, where are we right now? It's all, it's all opinion journalism. Sadly, where are you going to get really fair and balanced? Maybe um, the PBS NewsHour, Judy Woodward. Thank, thank you, Judy, which is what, I mean, that's what I watch. I, I can't listen. I mean, MSNBC drives me crazy as much as Fox drives me crazy. I wouldn't like this. I can't go there. But all I'm saying is that it, if she was railing about this back in the late 80s when all the media, the corporate media barons, who she uh, referred to as plantation owners, the latest crop of plantation own, owners from back then, Disney and Fox, it was Rupert Murdoch and Michael Eisner, um, you know, were gobble, gobble, gobbling everything up. And, of course, print journalism back then was already on the decline. And so what happens is you lose that objectivity because you are in, you know, you're in the constraints of your corporate master, as she put it. So yeah, I know I that's think a it, it, roundabout way. I covered a lot of themes in that. Yeah, yeah. no, well, you definitely answered the question. I think it is very interesting the way she was thinking about it. Uh, part of what makes her so compelling 
is at the time the main career choices for women were to be a nurse, a teacher, a secretary. So what she did really was pushing the boundaries. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how her strong personality impacted her ability to succeed in the workplace. Well, her her strong personality is what made people um, – here's the thing. She's – her, she's six feet. She's six feet tall. So she she towered over most of you know a lot of her editors. Um, but Molly had this incredible personality because she had a brilliant sense of humor. She was whip smart, whip smart, but so so funny. I mean, she showed up for her interview at the Texas Observer with a six pack of beer. Very Texan. And, um, and not afraid. I mean, just who she was, she strided in, and she was given the gig with Kay Northcutt, who was equally as small as Molly is tall. They were really Mutt and Jeff. And they were two women in their early 20s who were allowed to edit the only liberal publication in the state, much less the South, much less the United States, in 1970. That was incredibly, incredibly progressive. Um, and, you know, Molly, the breath ring for Molly was the New York Times. Oh, my God. And she, she left the Observer and she went to the New York Times, which for a lot of journalists was and is the brass ring. And, uh, you know, they wanted Molly for her voice, but they, they, you know, they ended up, she ended up getting into, because of her voice and the way she saw things, um, they fired her for her voice. <laughs> she went to toe-to-toe with Abe Rosenthal. You know, she came up at a time where, you know, it was, it was, patriarchy. It was white men running the newsrooms. I mean, you would look down the aisle and it was a bunch of guys. So she stood out. She had a wicked sense of humor, which made her very popular, but then she could use that humor to, you know, go toe to toe. So in the end, it made absolute, not in the end, but actually in the beginning of when she became a columnist, which really set her on her true path. um, it, 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 It was that wit and that very, very kind of laser sharp, laser edge that made her have her own voice and become um, renowned for it. Part of what makes her such a great subject for a film is that she was this larger-than-life character, not just because of her height, but because of the way that she moved through the world. And you mentioned that she was six feet tall. And you mentioned a little bit about, you know, how she towered over her editors and and how this um, impacted the way they treated her. Do you have any thoughts about how it impacted her personal life, and, and which, of course, these things are always intertwined, our personal lives and, and our professional lives? I just wonder if you have any thoughts about that. Well, you know, as a kid, she was, you know, she was, as her friends told me and her, her sister and her brother, she was six feet tall by the time she was 12 or 13, and it made her incredibly self-conscious. Um, she was a bookworm. Her nickname as a kid was Mole, and her, her family used to say Mole was in the hole upstairs reading her book, uh, reading her books, her pile of books. Um, she was incredibly self-conscious. She wore glasses, and um, she towered over everybody, even back then. And, you know, she joked about it. She said she always felt like she was um, a St. Bernard with a bunch of greyhounds, a Clydesdale amongst thoroughbreds, because she grew up very, um, in a very well-to-do family. She grew up in the toniest neighborhood of Houston, River Oaks. She went to a private school called St. John's, which she transferred to in junior high. 
And this is kind of a funny story, but her, which didn't make the film, but her, her besties who were throughout life told me that when they first, Molly was there, they, they, they called her a mature mother Molly, the three M's. And so um, she ended up, uh, uh, um, you know, kind of looking down her nose imperiously at them. And that's, I find that very funny because of who Molly became. <laughs> but, um, yeah, this, the high thing, it was horrible. Through, you know, she had, was supposed to go to debutante balls and all of that, and she would end up going in the bathroom and in a stall and reading her book. So it made her incredibly self-conscious until she ended up, you know, leaving home, leaving her family, going across the country to, to Smith where she really wanted to get out of Texas, where all she found out was everybody talked about the weather and football. And, of course, when she went across the East Coast, she thought that it was going to be totally different. And she was hoping that they would, you know, have more in-depth conversations and this and that. So, yeah, the height thing, it was interesting. Once she really owned who she was, she became, at Smith, she was, you know, she wore the pearl, she had the cashmere dress, all of it. But even then, she was, she was always bucking. She was always, you know, she never could fit in because when she went to Smith, she was looked because she towered over everybody. There's a, there's a great picture of her at Smith where she was like the, 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 the RA, so to speak, of a residence hall. And it's all the girls, and she's standing on the ground, and she's as tall as the girls, like, in the back row. And it's like she looks like the matron. It's, the, it's kind of funny. But at... Um, you know, at, at Smith, she, she found that they were looked down upon her, too, the East, Co- East Coast snobbery, because they felt if you were from Texas, you know, you got to be, you know, you know, 20% dumber than everybody else, because it was just this sense that, oh, well, she's from Texas. So, um, yeah, height, height always played a role. And then, of course, she used it uh, to her, uh, you know, to as she gained confidence in herself and really got her voice going, it was the thing that, you know, people would, Molly would walk into a room and all eyes were, were on her. She was gorgeous. She was six foot tall, red haired. I mean, um, Terry O'Rourke, um, who is the, the Harris County second district attorney was um, one of her ex-boyfriends from the, back in the day. And he described her as a young Jackie Kennedy. She was stunning. You know, she was really, really stunning. And she went toe-to-toe. She could go toe-to-toe with, with the guys, and they respected her. She could also drink them under the table, too, and then remember everything they said the next morning. Well, that's quite a strategy. So she certainly she devoted herself to her career. She was really passionate about what she was doing. And although height may have been a factor, there, there was a line in the movie I thought was interesting, which was that um, half of female journalists are single, and, um, you know, it does seem that a lot of professional women whose careers go far are single. And I just wonder if you had any comments about that. Yeah, then actually I, I got off the track a little bit. My apologies. Yes. In terms of, of yeah, Molly, Molly had, she had lovers, but she was very, very private about it. And she was really, I think, married to her career. And I also think, there was a deep sadness in Molly, a loneliness that she would never really talk about. I mean, she drank. She was a high-functioning alcoholic. Uh, but um, she, I think, made a choice 
And I think there, yes, I think there was a, I mean, I know there was a deep loneliness in her. She loved family. She loved kids. I mean, she was Aunt Mall to so many friends, kids. She put them through college. I think, um, I mean, from what her sister and her friends told me and her brother, you know, I think she had that fantasy when she had this one man that she was madly in love with uh, that she met in at Smith named Hank Holland. And uh, he suddenly passed away. I'm not going to give away how you can watch y'all can watch the film. Uh, but it, it, I think she kind of, at that point, she kind of packed that up. She had this fantasy that she, if they were the brightest, the best and the brightest of, you know, Ivy Leaguers. He was a Yaley. She was at the Smithy. They were going to get married. They were brighter and smarter than anybody in the room. They were going to have four children. I think she, she definitely had that fantasy. And when he was gone, I think she tucked it away and never went back to it. And her life took a trajectory that was all her own, but it didn't include a husband and children. And I, I think she, I think she would have loved to have kids, um, for sure. But uh, yeah, there was a, a deep loneliness and sadness in her that that she never really went into. So. Well, thank you. That's that's a, um, a you know a very helpful explanation. Could you tell us a little bit about her relationship with her father? Her relationship with her father was such that, um, hang on, is that, are you hearing my dog bark? We are. We, we are hearing your dog. Is that a problem? Well, it's okay. live radio, so it is what it is. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> right. No um, problem at all. You might even hear, you might even hear my cat meow in the background sometimes, so. <laughs> so, um, yes, yeah, so her, her, her father, the general, she dubbed him the general, General Jim Ivins. Uh, he was six foot four, stunningly handsome, and hence the name. Um, he was a corporate uh, lawyer for Tenneco Gas and Oil, Tenneco Inc. And he was he was also a competitive sailor in in, in, the, in terms of like Olympic competitive sailor. So Molly was his first mate. Everything was run as in ship shape order. And she bucked against her father completely. What he said, and, you know, he was a conservative. He was a conservative Republican. They went toe-to-toe and terrible fights. And, and, and I, it's interesting. Uh, I found in the archive at the Briscoe, which houses the Briscoe Center for American Studies at UT, houses uh, her papers. She had notes that he had written her, like that were like probably on the kitchen counter. She still had them. Um, she went toe-to-toe with her father. And I do think that is a deep-rooted uh, link to her going toe-to-toe with all her b- bosses and the patriarchy of the male patriarchy of the workplace. Definitely rooted to her father. That's- and I think that her whole thing of, of going after, you know, speaking truth to power was about speaking truth to her father. I mean, if I'm being, you know, kind of, you know, pop shop, <laughs> uh, an analyst, but I think you could really tie it back. Yeah, that's very interesting. These days, do you think a reporter, especially a female reporter, could function the way that she did, given the way that social media has made it easier for people to attack others with differing viewpoints? I think... Say, repeat that question to me one more time. 
Well, the question is, do you think she could, uh, these days, do you think a reporter, especially a woman, could function the way that she did, given the way social media has made it easier for people to attack others with differing viewpoints? Hmm. It's a, okay, so I think, I think that it's, it's harder in a certain way because we're so polarized and because everything is, is so instant. Now, if it was Molly Ivins doing it, I think that people would go after her, but I think she would have a strategy. I think for reporters these days, I, I, here's the thing. I think you are who you are. You are. If you are of that person of speaking truth to power, no matter what, you're going to still do it. And there are reporters who are, who are doing it, who are boots on the ground. Look at what's going on in Ukraine. And it's not just, it's not just the, you know, the voices. I mean, I, I, I'm blown away. I mean, I, you know, Jane Ferguson, they're out on the front line. They are doing what they're doing. I look at all the women who are on PBS NewsHour. News Hour. They are speaking their truth. Yeah, people are going to come, going to buck up against it. The people, you know, Molly used to talk about the polarization, about how people would get so angry that they're, they would just bristle and, until they're, she used to say their turkey gobbles would shake back and forth. Um, I think that it's, I think that for all, because with news, if it bleeds, it leads. That's still there. People run with the negative first. And I think that there's a whole host of uh, journalists who are using social media to their advantage. And they're, they're, I think the, the good news about it, there's the good news and the bad news. The bad news is the polarization and the instant, you know, shaming or trying to shut somebody down. If the other time is that you can reach so many people in such a short amount of time and wake them up. So it's a double-edged sword. Uh, I think that you just, you know, I think there, there are women who are doing what she does. Um, they have to. You, you can't stop. You know, I can, it's social media, it's like it's good and bad, as we all know. It's a great distraction at the same time. You know, where do we get news first? Where does the news come in first? Twitter. You know? of which Elon took a seat on the board. Oh, actually, uh, <laughs> although it's off topic, I, I heard that he didn't take a seat on the board because oh, um, that would limit his ability to possibly do a, 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 you know, overtake the company by getting more than 50% of the stock. But off topic. <laughs> but anyway, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you funded this movie it's you know as an independent filmmaker this is such a challenging thing tell me about it i mean we documentary filmmakers i think we're we're slightly insane i mean yeah people don't understand i mean make money what there's there's like there's like the, the the 10 to 20 people who get all the gigs and then the rest of us yes it's like <laughs> a pyramid funded. Yeah, it is. It is totally like a pyramid, and so it's it's um, it's hard. I mean, people make documentaries because we have to. There, there's there's stories that need to be told, um, and and finding the funding is that is one of the biggest challenges, hurdles of making a doc. Um, it took us uh, six and a half, seven years to make Ray Tell the Life and Times of Molly Ivins, and when we started out, so my producing partners are James Egan and uh, Carlisle Vandervoort who is the native Texan. She is the authentic Texan and actually grew up in River Oaks and went to St. John's. 
So had a very similar trajectory to Molly and comes from an oil and gas family. So, um, so we three partners, partners, as Molly would say, we three partners uh, ponied up the first 10K out of our own pocket to get started. And we got the green light, I think, uh, five weeks after, no, three weeks after seeing the play. I did a bit of research, was on a plane two weeks after that, so what, total of five, six weeks later, and we did our first round of interviews in Austin. I went to Carlisle in Houston, and uh, we uh, drove to Austin, and we did the first six interviews, and then we held a fundraiser. Um, One of those interviews was the great Jim Hightower, and we held it in his office, which is a church, which we call the Church of Hightower, and through Molly's, you know, once we got the green light from Betsy Moon, Molly's chief of staff, her gatekeeper, and Molly's uh, uh, manager who ran her estate, and she left her estate to the Texas Observer and the ACLU, um, we got a green light. Uh, everybody started to spread the word. And, you know, as warm-hearted, big-hearted Molly Ivins is and was, so are her friends. And so every door started to open to us. So word spread, we're doing a fundraiser at, Jim Hightower, the Church of Hightower, and so we raised that. I had a, I had a sizzle. I did I have a, no, I didn't even have a sizzle yet. I just had Carlisle and I and our personalities, and our passion, and um, we raised seventeen thousand uh, dollars. That first, literally, uh, out the door. So that gave us some money, and um, and then so that's what we would do. We would go. We did a fundraiser three months later in Washington D.C. where uh, we did three more interviews. Um, one was with her. Her creator, her her columnist, uh, her column was edited by Anthony Zerker for Creator Syndicate, and we interviewed him. We and we interviewed her dear friend Myra McPherson, another female journalist who came up the same way Molly did, um, who's written a number of books. And then um, we did Kathleen Turner because she was in the play, and we did another fundraiser in D.C. And so that was kind of our trajectory uh, for about a year and a half. Um, people would hear about it, and sometimes we would get mostly we would get you know, and we were on we were on uh, Facebook. I had like I had gotten us 200 followers because Molly, most of Molly's constituency were more Facebook type. Instagram wasn't even happening yet. Um, and then uh, around 20, I did another round of interviews in 2013, and you know, money came in. You know, we were also sponsored by the IDA. We had a fiscal sponsorship through the International Documentary Association. So money came in that way as well. And we applied for grants. Thank you, Carol. Dean was the, the one and only grant we, we got, which was wonderful. And uh, that helped us out. And then we ended up, uh, James, in 2014, right before... He said, I, I, I needed to pay my mortgage. I, was, I was, used to be a showrunner for series and stuff, and I stopped doing that. And um, he said, uh, I, I need you to teach a class up at the Academy of Art University in San Francisco. And I said, uh, really? I, I'm not going to teach a, a professor. Why? He said, no, 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 I just need you to teach. It's an online class. It's in social media marketing and entertainment. I said, I don't know anything about social media and marketing. I'm a filmmaker. I'm a filmmaker. I'm, I'm sure. What? And he said, "You're a producer. You can. You just look at look it over the online course and go for it." And I did, and I had a ball doing it. It was actually it was a lot of fun. A year later, we launched our Kickstarter campaign. So technically, I started teaching to pay my rent, and I did this course, and it basically I got taught 
and we did a successful Kickstarter campaign where we raised, we blew past our goal of $75,000 in the first 10 days, and we raised $126,000 plus. And that really was incredible. And the thing that, and then also the other thing that I will mention is six months before we, no, but yeah, six months before we launched it, we we met this woman named Gerald Jagoda, who I call, who was our social media producer. Back then I called her our social media maven. And she looked at our Paltry 200 people and she said, no, 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 no. We're not going to release this campaign for another like five months. We need to build up your social media. And Molly had a constituency. So Gerald set about doing that with at the time her partner, Gretchen Landau. And, um, you know, Twitter, but mostly Facebook because Molly's constituency is that age. And she, we have over, I don't know, 24,000 followers. And it, it just, it really built it up. And so when we launched the Facebook thing, I also, I had done a documentary on Jackson Brown called Jackson Brown Going Home. And he's a friend and a dear and Bonnie Rayett. And so we, Bonnie Rayett knew Molly. So Bonnie, 10, 10 days into it, tweeted about our Kickstarter campaign and overnight, we got like $22,000. The same at also Bonnie's friend and Molly's best, one, best friend, Annie Lamott, the writer, did the same thing. It was all coordinated. And she posted to her thousands upon thousands of followers, and we got another like $24,000 in a 24-hour period. That was extraordinary. And Jackson, the same thing, same idea. So that helped. And... Uh, and then that was it. I mean, we, we tried. We knocked on doors. We did. But the, 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 Carlisle and I went all over doing our dog and pony. I literally, a year or so after we got started in 2012, I had a sizzle. Um, that was a funding cut, and then I had a sizzle that uh, basically didn't change for six years. It was the same one. And that's what we did. That was pretty much how it is. And we had some angels who came through. So we had many, I have several stories about angels who just suddenly came through for us. And uh, yeah, so that was, that's, that's how hard it is. And then, this is amazing. We found out we were in Sundance. This is incredible. We found out we were in Sundance the week after the 2018 elections, um, where 101 freshman congresswomen uh, became freshman congresswomen, 101 women. And um, so, you know, Molly, is this kind of the timing was unbelievable. Uh, we found out a week later or three days later, we were in Sundance and we only had $12,000 in the bank. And we had, this was November 18th, and we had to have our DCP at Sundance by January 24th. Uh-oh. <laughs> We had to find some quick cash to be able to finish the film. And two angels came through and got us in two and a half days. One decided in an hour and a half and the other two days, and we, we had the funds to get us across the finish line. Well, I'm so happy it came together for you. I, I do want to circle back. You mentioned that you got the grant from, from the heart. And um, as was mentioned at the beginning of the show, I, I also got that grant for my film, and it was very special because it was the first funding that we got after many years of working on the film. But I bring it up because so many documentary filmmakers do rely on grants, which are challenging to get and lots of paperwork. But something that 
I feel is very unfortunate is that a lot of the larger grants for documentaries, they, they don't support biographical films. And it's it's sad because women's stories have typically been omitted from the history books and you don't see too many statues of, you know, powerful women and things like that. And so it's, it's just another um, thing that makes it harder to share their stories with a wider audience. So... I'm, again, I'm glad that you found other strategies and you were able to make it happen. And I wonder if you could tell us where can we see the film now? It's, you know, it's played festivals already. So where's it screening these days? So you can see uh, Ray's Hell. Um, if you have Hulu, you can watch it. Um, if you have a subscription, otherwise you can, you know, it's on every platform. You can rent it. And it, it, it keeps going. It keeps people... Molly is, uh, is evergreen. She's relevant. Things that she said, you know, like I said, you know, what is it, 15, 10 years, 15 years now, 20, 30 years are happening right now. Um, you can watch it via Amazon, uh, Apple, uh, uh, Voodoo. Uh, you can go to www.mollyivansfilm.com. And uh, it's it's, uh, it's, part, it's our our site with Magnolia Pictures, which is our distributor, and they have a listing of all the places that you can rent it. And most recently, it aired across the great state of Texas. I shouldn't say great state anymore, um, but it aired across Texas. Uh, it still is great for those people who are fighting the good fight. And um, you, they showed it. Uh, uh, in honor of Women's History Month, it, it was aired on March 28th across the uh, the entire state, one place, one time, um, and they had never done that before. So that was pretty wonderful, and we've gotten a big surge because of that. And now we hear more PBS stations want it. So we're hoping um, that at the end of the year, I, I believe we'll our contract. With Hulu may be up, and then we will be uh, hopefully finding homes elsewhere for for Ray's Hell. But it'll definitely be able to be rented from now until whenever, because Magnolia has it, and it's it's out there. Terrific! That's great. Um, Magnolia also has the Kusama film, so once again, we're we're uh, in good company. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what you're working on now. Well, right now I've been, it's funny, I had a couple of things I was really, I was working on when Molly, we went through the, the whirlwind of 2019 and 2020, and thank, thank you, Molly, <laughs> that we premiered in 2019, because I know how difficult it's been for our fellow documentary filmmakers, or any filmmakers for that matter, um, in light of the pandemic, which started, Sundance squeaked through, but after that, for two years, it's been very, very hard. And um, to, to, and also to have the festival experience, and and all of that. Um, that said, I I had some things I was very interest I was interested in. I wasn't going to say very. And after the seven years of doing Molly, um, as well as teaching, uh, it was, and then the pandemic. The pandemic gave me the, uh, I want to say the opportunity, which is a blessing to kind of step back and really assess. And I cleared my plate. I just, I got off things I was attached to. I said, I've been 
working so focused and so everything is, um, you know, what's next, what's next? I kind of just emptied out because I have to make room for whatever is next to bubble up. And there are two things, two, what, the big thing for me is our shared humanity, but there's also something else that's been bubbling. Another thing that, you know, so I'm looking at the themes, but emotionally as well as deep, deep themes that keep bubbling up for me. And I have a couple of things that I just now am starting to get that feeling, like the feeling I got when I decided to do Ray's Hell. So I'm just going to, I'm following my instincts and I don't really want to talk about them because I feel that kind of jinxes it. But Yeah, I feel um, the same way. <laughs> but yeah. I had to empty out and just like I just focused, like, right, I'm focusing on teaching. You know, I have a full load this semester at the Academy of Art University. I teach documentary film. I teach editing. I teach writing. I teach all sorts of things, you know. I teach about, you know, young creative minds, you know, how, how to uh, um, you, you go into the creative arts, you know. I always say there's the three Ps, you know, patience, perseverance, and passion. And the biggest question, if you want to make films or any, anybody, Anybody wanting to do anything, how curious are you? I ask my students first day of class, how curious are you? You Well, I think it's important to touch on just how these big projects that are, you know, independent films that are so hard to fund, they, they are really, they take a lot out of you, even though, you know, it's our passion to tell these stories. I wonder if um, there's anything I didn't ask you about that you would like to share with us. Uh, no, you've asked me a lot, and I hope I didn't get too off topic because I can do that. I don't mean to. I just get go into a, a, a kind of a, a free flow. Um, you know, I, I just uh, one thing. One thing I will say to the listeners is. Um, and it's something I teach, or it's, just, it's not even, teaching is sharing. That's all I do. I'm a big sharer. It's all in the sharing. Um, I wanted to say that every creative project has its own life's breath, and you have to allow it the room to expand. You know, it's not on your time, but it's time. And we really had that, I mean, I directly had that experience when making Molly. Every time I tried to push, and Carlisle and Jesse tried to push, like, we have to get it, we have to get it done because this is going to happen, or, or, you know, like, we have to get, the, get it out for the midterm elections, and we would get, we would, and nothing would happen. But as soon as we stepped out of the way, and particularly me, it would flow right through. So it became my thing to say, you know, I'm not driving this bus. Molly is. Molly's driving the bus, and I'm just blessed to be on her ride. So you got to, every creative project has its own life breath. you got to birth it and let it breathe. And it will, if you get out, it's like getting out of your own way. It does. If you've created it, it's a creative entity. It does have a pulse. But sometimes we get so focused into, we've got to have this and we've got to have that. We, we lose sight. And so you got to, that's why you empty out. That's why I've emptied out. You have to allow the room. Oh, I wanted to ask, right before the show started, you mentioned you had a story about biographical films. Did we cover <laughs> that, or was that something you wanted to share? Oh, no. No, so this is one of the things I always tell. But here's another thing. Tips to give documentary filmmakers. Follow your instincts. Why? First thought, best thought. So, first thought, best thought. 
um, uh, think about when you're a kid and you're doing, you know, multiple choices and you, you circle one or you fill in those little dots and then you, say, you go back to you say, no, that's not in, you erase it and then you pick something else and nine times out of ten, it was, it's wrong because it was your, your first thought, best thought, it was right. So um, <laughs> James and I, when we first started doing this, we went to, I, you know, because I had been a showrunner, I had connections to certain media companies and I went to certain um, executives who shall remain nameless and uh, pitched, and everybody would say, oh, my God, I love Molly. Everybody knew who she was. I love her. Oh, we'd love to fund this. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then two out of three, something like that, came back to us literally with, it's a biopic, and she's dead. (laughs) Well, you certainly managed to make it work, and people certainly line up to watch shows about Oh, I just, no, wait, I wait, just wait, want wait. to say about, okay, you go. No, go ahead, go ahead. I was just going to say, people line up to watch shows about, you know, Marilyn Monroe and Princess Diana, and they're, they're long gone, too. No, so, so what ended up happening was James and I got, like, spooked, so biopic. So then I spun for I, I, two years thinking it can't be a biopic, and I basically came up with all, what's the structure, what's the structure. I mean, I was so tortured, completely tortured. Finally, I got together with Kate, the great Kate Amend, who you know very well. Nate, we, yes, we I love Kate. We love Kate. And she looked at me over a cup of coffee, and I you know, was telling her this. And she looked at me, and she said, Janice, what's wrong with the biopic? And it's like she like unleashed, it's like she unleashed me from my own self-imposed you know, torture chamber. And in my brain, it just went click. And I looked at her, and I said, Nothing. And all of a sudden, it was like I, she, she, it was, it was the right time. What, it was Kate. I got on a plane, went to the East Coast, and on the plane, I jotted down the structure. just poured out of me. I got out the plane. I looked at it. I got to where I was going. And I said, that looks really, wow, that's great. That looks so familiar, though. Now, I always take pictures of my structure boards, my, my index cards, and I went back to the first one I had done in 2012 and 2013, that is exactly the film that you see uh, today, except for maybe two or three more things that I added into it. So first thought, best thought. <laughs> well, there you go. We need, we need more people to fund biographical films about uh, women, whether they're living or dead. That's, that's, exactly. Uh, that's, that's, I think that's what we could say for sure. So uh, for anyone who would like to follow your career, I would like to give you the opportunity to share your social media handles with us, whether they be personal or for the film and also your website. So, okay, so my website is down, and it's been down literally since the film came out because it was on an old platform, and I didn't have time to redo it. And I really, two years, I haven't, it's been crazy. So I'm in the process in the next six months of redoing my website. So sorry about that. Um, You can IMDB me, but you can follow me um, at J-E at Janice, what is, wait, what was my, let me, on Facebook, I'm Janice Engel, I believe. You can just, you know, friend me or try to. I'm on Janice Engel. There's also Molly Ivins has her own page on Facebook. And um, I am also on Instagram as Janice Engel, J-A-N-I-C-E-E-N-G-E-L, no spaces. Um, Same thing on Twitter. I don't do Twitter so much because there's only so much, I have only so much bandwidth. Um, But Molly's certainly on there. And, uh, yeah, that's it. And I I, am, yeah, I'm on 
yeah, Facebook is the same thing. It's just my name, J-A-N-I-C-E, space E-N-G-E-L. The website is www.mollyivansfilm.com. And um, that, we're also on Instagram that way as well. Well, terrific. And I know you've, you, you know, you've had a long career and there's so many other things we could talk about, but we're running out of time. And I just would like to ask Claire if you had any final question to ask before we close out the show. Oh, I guess we're not hearing Claire. So uh, she may be on mute. No, I'm not oh, sure. I'm so but... sorry. I, I had it muted. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I <I'll>, Just in <laughs> case my cat meows, you know. <laughs> So, yes, I, I, great interview, lots of good information. I feel like um, every time a filmmaker tells their story, there's something always new. There's always a new gem to learn from. And I love how you start out your classes with what are you curious about? You know, what, how about this curiosity and what it does? I learned a lot. Thank you so much. Well, I appreciate you. it. I'm glad you were on the show today. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it. I, it's always so strange because I like to have conversations. So it's a, if I go into a run-on, I, I, I just, you know, it's because we're not, <laughs> it's, it's, it's hard. I like to have the back and forth, but I, I enjoyed it. And, and Heather, I'm a huge fan of your film and we can sidebar about it. I have quite so many questions. Again, oh, how well, curious thank am you. I? I'm very curious. Thank you so much. That's so kind of you, and it means so much to me. So thank you, and thanks to everyone for listening. Thank you. Right. Thanks for having me. Be well, me. everyone. And, um, thank you. Bye. Okay. Bye. Be well, everyone. Now, in its second edition, Carol Dean's popular book, The Art of Film Funding, has 12 new chapters to cover all areas of film financing and how to avoid expensive pitfalls. Learn how to start with an idea and end with a trailer. How to make an ask for money. Create your story structure and your trailer. Legal advice, fair use, successful crowdfunding, how to ask for music rights, and what insurance you can't shoot without. Available on Amazon under Carol Dean and at FromTheHeartProductions.com. I want to remind our listeners that David Raiklin is a brilliant and talented award-winning musician who scores films and can compose music for a trio or for a full orchestra. David is a very good friend to the independent filmmaker and comes highly recommended by From the Heart Productions. If you need music to help tell your story, please contact him at davidraiklin.com. That's david, R-A-I-K-L-E-N.com. And Carol and I want to thank you for tuning in to The Art of Film Funding. Please visit our website at fromtheheartproductions.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Good luck with your films, everyone.